0: Welcome to the WCAPS Five podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies,
1: and grow together. VIVE, vision, impact, voice, engagement. My name is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, and I am the founder and executive director of Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. You are listening to a webinar by Dr. Kimberly Leary, who is a psychologist, as she discusses the issue of the mental health impacts of COVID-19. The discussion has already started, and you are joining it near the beginning. Thank you.
2: And then look through an intersectional lens because we can begin to see that the most vulnerable on multiple measures are also the most vulnerable when it comes to mental health. And that does include women and girls, and in particular, women and girls or women of color, at least. We don't yet know the data signals from girls of color, but we have every reason to suspect that their mental health needs are also exacerbated and likely to be less visible right now. So what I hope we can do at the end is really think about these in terms of the world you all know so well, which is that of security and thinking about security, broadly speaking, where we might bring together this world of mental health and ensuring security for our nation and for the globe. So Bonnie's gonna help with my slides today because I uh, couldn't quite get them to work on my end. Right. So, just as I mentioned, we'll be looking ultimately through an intersectional lens. And if I could get the uh, next slide, Bonnie. So, when we think about mental health in the context of COVID, what's most important to keep in mind is that mental health is newly amplified, or the challenges with mental health are newly amplified for really all of us. And I think that's important because it helps us to build up empathy, ultimately, for those who are even more profoundly affected by mental health challenges. But since we're all in this together, let me just speak broadly about mental health in this current moment. So the first thing to appreciate is that stress and anxiety are pretty normal reactions. And most of the time they help us out because they serve as very useful signals. So when you feel stressed or anxious, typically that alerts you that there's some kind of a threat, not the kind of threat you all work with, but a threat in your kind of local ecosystem. And when people feel threatened under ordinary circumstances, they're motivated to take corrective action. And when people take corrective action, then the sense of anxiety goes down. This is why the signaling system works so very well. But stress can become traumatic and amplified under conditions like those we face with the COVID crisis. So certainly when stress is amplified, when people are facing circumstances that are negative, that have uh, unpredictable time courses, where they can't exert direct control, and where information is ambiguous and requires continuous adaption, This is essentially textbook COVID-19 for all of us right now. And under those conditions, the very actions that people take in order to take corrective action to mediate uh, stress, like social and, and social distancing, physical distancing, also bring about new challenges. And we'll explore what some of those challenges are going forward. So instead of the corrective action reducing stress, it just produces more stress. And that's the world that we're in right now with COVID-19, which makes mental health an issue for all of us. Uh, Bonnie, if I could have the next slide, please. But we know that the COVID situation, it has really created a challenge for particular segments of our population. And these are some of the early data signals that we see about the COVID-19 pandemic. And essentially, uh, across different platforms, we see an increase in uh, people seeking help. And right now, one of the easiest, most reliable ways to seek help is through uh, various helplines that are out there. So these are just some statistics that show that since February, and you see every kind of helpline getting increased traffic. The last statistic is one I'll just kind of point you to because it's the most recent, that... uh, There's a a 1,000% increase in disaster distress hotline of people seeking help. And I was on the phone yesterday with people who run these crisis lines, various kinds, and every kind of crisis line right now is seeing an increase in volume. So farm helplines that usually are not dealing with mental health issues are receiving calls from people in rural communities who are talking about the economic problems that they're having, but also the family challenges and mental health challenges that they're experiencing as well. So these early data signals suggest that there's quite a lot of distress across the board. And if I could have the next uh, slide, Bonnie. We also know that parents, and we'll look at some other segmented populations, are experiencing particular kinds of stress. You know, for those who are able to work from home, and that's certainly not everybody, they may have to simultaneously take care of children or elders, but they uh, also have to do their jobs. And even though they're in a privileged position of being able to work from home, they're experiencing quite a lot of stress. For people who have jobs, uh, first responders and essential workers of all kinds, from bus drivers to law enforcement, what we see is also an uptick in stress because they can't actually work from home. And so they know that in performing their public service duty, they're also potentially uh, exposing their families to increased risk. So these are a set of statistics that came out of the School of Social Work at the University of Michigan from a few uh, weeks ago. And they also show that parents are experiencing quite a lot of stress, and that's resulting in sort of punitive behavior strategies with their children. And there is concern in the mental health community that what we'll see down the line will be an increase in childhood sexual abuse and childhood abuse more broadly. Many of the ways that we learn about abuse come from pediatricians or from teachers. And with kids not having that kind of engagement right now, except online, we have seen a decrease in those kinds of reports. And we expect there'll be an increase once uh, stay-at-home orders and return-to-school orders uh, resume. If I could have the next slide, please. And I wanted to also mention our healthcare workers of all kinds, not just doctors and nurses, but the orderlies who transport patients from one end of the hospital to the next, the people who are at the front desk in the ERs, all of these are healthcare workers, and their mental health needs are increasing uh, significantly. Theirs are a little more kin to what we might think of as post-traumatic stress as they see much higher volumes of very sick people. And their usual way of being able to help people is curtailed. So right now, our healers are at risk, as well as parents, and as you'll see, women and girls as we go on. Uh, if I could have the next slide, please. Now, one amid this dreary news, I do want to uh, let you know that there are some bright spots. The first is that the kind of mental health and stress conditions that I'm talking about are treatable. We have evidence-based ways of treating both anxiety, post-traumatic stress, depression, and so forth. And increasingly, because of some policy relief that has been put forth, particularly by Medicare and by private insurers and, and by governors as part of their COVID response, it's increasingly possible for people to get treatment under stay-at-home conditions. So in two weeks, the mental health and healthcare profession went from being reluctant to engage in virtual work to a full-on capacity-building initiative. And so right now, mental health services through hospitals and through private practitioners are available online. And uh, importantly, those services are now being reimbursed. So the good news is that despite these concerns, it's possible for people to get the help and care that they need. Let me also talk now about the sort of larger policy world that has enabled that care to be available. Uh, Bonnie, if I could get the next slide, please. So in my work, and I do a lot of work as supporting mayoral leaders and other kinds of leaders in thinking about What they can do from their bully pulpit and from uh, in the context of the ecosystems that they manage at the city uh, level. Been advocating that mental health supports need to be leveraged, perhaps better leveraged. First of all, they're universal supports for positive coping, and the WHO, CDC, SAMHSA, and other private organizations have listed what those are. So, for example, keeping a schedule even though it's hard to do that when you're working from home, if you're able to do that. Separating your workspace from your home space, even if it's just a corner of your dining room table. All the things that help us to feel that we're oriented are good things to do. Limiting media consumption, including social media about the virus, has been something that we've also been recommending. Limiting it to one time a day or only to trusted sources. As I mentioned, telemental health access has now been increased, both because Medicare beneficiaries can now receive telehealth and now uh, care over phone lines, which is important for reaching older people who may not always feel comfortable with an environment like Zoom. The crisis hotlines are fully staffed and uh, able to even take more capacity if needed. And we also see the the emergence of new warm lines. These are emotional support hotlines or helplines staffed by peer volunteers. And so you see the mental health system beginning to kind of become more visible. It's often in the background. Now we can see it as people are reaching out. Next slide, please. So when I talk to leaders such as yourselves, I like to emphasize what they can do in their leadership roles And first, I'm going to talk about, again, the big picture and then kind of zoom down or zoom into some of the specific tools that a leader can put in his or her toolkit. So the first thing that leaders can do in this context is make sure that their messaging is on point and amplifies uh, best practices that come from federal, state, and local government. So one of those is to both encouraging physical distancing, because we know that's so critical still, but also ways in which people can remain connected to friends, family, coworkers, and loved ones. Uh, there's a hashtag alone together that's gone viral, and it includes a lot of information on what that connectivity can look like. The other messaging that leaders can engage in is to speak to the realistic challenges that people are experiencing so they can acknowledge that a link exists between economic challenges and mental health concerns. If you're worried about your job, if you're worried about getting unemployment, it's hard to have a positive mental health set. And it helps when people feel that their real concerns are recognized, particularly by those who are in leadership roles. The other thing that leaders can do is amplify positive stories. There are a lot of people out there who are doing everything they can to help others in their communities. At Harvard, for example, a number of our students have created these tutoring exchanges that they're offering for free to families in need and taking fees from families who uh, can afford to pay and then donating those fees elsewhere. So amplifying positive stories helps people to be in touch with their own agency and to know that if someone's doing something in one community, you might be able to do that in your own community. The second thing that leaders can do, and I'll say more about this with the toolkit, is to augment access and capacity. So if you're in a position to have a resource for teams or for employees or for organizations, one thing that's incredibly helpful to do is to update mental health resources and to be alert to new kinds of uh, sources of help, like pastoral care helplines that are coming online as well. And since this is very akin to a disaster, mental health practitioners who have disaster mental health expertise have been partnering with jurisdictions to bring that special capacity to the messaging and resource aggregation that we're seeing in so many communities. Next slide, please. And in thinking about mental health, it's really important to recognize that stigma exists, particularly in communities of color. So as leaders, we all have the capacity and responsibility to try to mitigate stigma, to try to normalize mental health concerns, which is why I began this uh, presentation with saying, we're all in this together. Our mental health is an issue for all of us right now, not just for those who have defined diagnoses. So by normalizing mental health concerns and encouraging help seeking, people can get access to the resources that you've also been aggregating. Language here is really important, particularly as we begin to see uh, COVID's penetration into communities of color. So everything we know about stigma and discrimination needs to be applied to the COVID crisis as well. So instead of calling uh, those who have been infected with the virus COVID cases, language that preserves their humanity, people with COVID-19, is incredibly important. And then finally, it's important to acknowledge the unspeakable. Those who are in community leadership roles may have to speak to losses that people in that community have experienced. Loss by death and the loss of rituals that we rely on, funerals, memorial services, that people may have deferred or have to do in a new way online. Acknowledging those losses can bring people incredible comfort. Uh, the second thing that uh, falls under the heading of Acknowledging the Unspeakable is recognizing that the COVID-19 pandemic it affects different communities in different ways. And we need to really grapple with the disparities that we see and be able to address those in a straightforward way. Next slide, please. So this is just a toolkit for working with your teams. This is more on uh, in terms of individual activities that, that you can engage. You can ask people on your team, uh, "How are you and your family doing?" Uh, that counts for a lot. There's an article that came out in the Harvard Business Review recently that was talking about how CEOs can support employee mental health, and half of them, of CEOs, half of leaders don't mention mental health and stress even when. We know that that's on everyone's mind. You can engage in supportive listening. And even though many of you on this call are doers, you also have to recognize you can't solve every challenge that team members have. What you can do is convey your understanding of the challenges that people have and ensure that people feel heard. Again, that counts for a lot. And then you can make sure that you return to the conversation periodically. It's not just a one-and-done situation. Mental health doesn't appear in the sixth week of the crisis and then disappear. It's something that's going to be an ongoing concern, even as we begin to return back to work and as communities and economies open up. One very important message here is that you're going to accompany your people through the uncertainty that exists. You may not be able to solve it, but you will be there with them. And again, communicating resources is just so critically important. Okay, let me stop there and just see if there are any questions that people have before I go on to to talk about some of the intersectional challenges. Can we open it up for a few questions, Bonnie, right now? The questions I have,
1: one is, what do you think about, because the healthcare workers are working so hard and I'm sure they're getting opportunities and you're, you're giving us ideas for how their supervisors can help them deal with mental health issues. What do you perceive might be the situation when this slows down and they may need time, I would think, to just kind of decompress and how will that affect, you know, the workforce? But I think afterwards, um, you know, they, they, but I think they're going to need certainly need some time to recover. The second one is in response to your, your point about the fact that doing this virtually was not something that was us, something that the uh, mental health services would have thought to do, but now with COVID-19, they're embracing it. Is this something you think may stay? Because I think there really is an advantage to being able to help people who may not be able to venture out, who may not be able to afford it. And maybe if the governors can, or whoever can continue to, to compensate for this, it would be something that would be great to continue. So I'm wondering what you think about that. Is that something that can continue? And- And I think it's a good thing that that's happening. And the last one is really just where do we, you're giving us some amazing information. Is there a resources place, a resources page where we can direct people to get information for for mental health issues? Thanks.
2: Sure. So I'll start with the uh, last question first. I'm happy to share some information resource sheets with you, Bonnie, and then you could share them with the group if people would like to receive those. So the first with the healthcare workers, I think it's really a a very critical question that you're asking. You know, if you just read the pages uh, of your local newspaper or the national newspapers, what you'll see is extraordinary courage and effort on the the part of healthcare workers throughout the system. Again, the people who are transporting patients, uh, EMTs, people transporting them in the hospital, nurses, administrative workers, food service workers, doctors, etc. It's all hands on deck and it's admirable, but you can also hear them talking openly about the terrible stress that they're under. So I think it's quite likely that what we'll see is a surge of mental health needs among many sectors of the population, but especially around essential workers and frontline healthcare workers. And we talk about acute stress, which is what people experience during a crisis. But the larger challenge will come after the crisis begins to ease. And what we will see is is people moving, if you will, from an acute stress condition to a more classic post-traumatic stress disorder. That's what I'm anticipating. We won't know until later. But I'm on the, hospital, on the staff of a hospital, a McLean Hospital, which is uh, Harvard's uh, behavioral health hospital. And uh, it's a specialty hospital within the system. We're anticipating our surge to be four to six weeks from now. Mm-hmm. And we're basing that on previous crises that have taken place, including the Marathon bombing in Boston.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You saw people sort of shocked and coping for a period of time, and then an uptick in people seeking to find mental health services. Now to your second question, there is every hope among my colleagues that uh, you cannot put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That once tele-mental uh, health is available, it makes so much sense. And right now, some of the regulatory relief has come in terms of um, being more realistic about uh, HIPAA and other kinds of privacy concerns as people are using a multitude of platforms. But there are HIPAA-compliant platforms out there, including one created by the Zoom people. So I'm very hopeful that the advocacy that you see by mental health clinicians and populations will result in this being an open channel of care that continues on. One other thing I'll say is about economically challenged groups as well, is that we have to think about the fact that It's not just having the platform, it's also having the resources and credits on your cell phone to be able to utilize those services. So there's a lot of work that we need to do to make sure that we don't just replicate disparities in an online platform the way they exist in brick and mortar mental health, that we find new ways of getting the services to people who need them.
1: Great, good point. Um, does anyone else have a question? You can raise your hand or um, does everyone know how to raise your hand? Marcia, would you like to ask a question? Yes,
0: please. Um, thank you. Thank you, ladies, for what you're sharing. Uh, Kimberlyn, may I ask two things? When you first began, you, you mentioned that there would be an uptick in childhood sexual abuse. And I was curious why. I I understand the stress that parents are under. And then they may be more punitive towards their children. But why the uptick, do you think, in child sexual abuse? And the other question is really about what role do you think faith can play as we try to navigate our way through this whole post, well, we're in the midst of COVID, but pre being in the midst of COVID right now and afterwards, what role do you think faith, faith systems, faith beliefs can play in all of this, please?
2: Absolutely critical, the role of faith, spirituality, and religion. Because another group of providers who have also transitioned online are the faith community, right? Uh, Many church services, many kinds of spiritual support groups have now transitioned online as well. So some of my colleagues here at Harvard who work at the Divinity School have been working with other pastoral care counselors to make sure that those services now can transition well and appropriately to an online mm. format. So we're speculating right now about childhood sexual abuse because we don't yet have the data signals. But when people are uh, sheltering at home and where they are under enormous stress and where their economic challenges and where there is grave uncertainty, those are kind of the conditions that are associated with abuse of all kinds domestic violence, yep, yep. Uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse. So I think we're just on the alert for it right now because the usual people teachers, healthcare providers, pediatricians who can spot something aren't able to spot it in quite the same way if they're working online. And it's a concern, and there is every expectation that the numbers will tick up. So it's a data signal to watch is the best way I would put it.
1: I see, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Any other questions? Anyone want to jump in before we move on? So way back
2: 100 years ago, in the early April, we saw in uh, the popular press a number of questions about the demographics of the coronavirus and early supposition that it will would affect communities of color and low-income communities at, at higher rates. And the next slide, please. And if we jump forward uh, to more recent work, what we see is that that's uh, precisely the case. This is from also early April, but these same data are showing the same trend, that. Even when you look at the share, say, of African-Americans of a city or state's population, and then you look at the rates of COVID infection and COVID death, what you'll see is that the share of COVID deaths way far exceeds the share of African-Americans, in this example, uh, in a community. So we can begin to see that the African-American community and other communities of color are experiencing a devastating impact of the COVID virus. Uh, the next slide, please, I'm gonna, but uh, a couple of reasons for that is looking at uh, residential segregation and living conditions that uh, when you have people living in densely congregate settings and one it, with underlying health conditions that, that have not received adequate treatment, uh, it sets the stage. So we also see that that's uh, you know, one reason why we have this proliferation of the virus. Because minority groups are overrepresented in jails and prisons, there's special risk there to congregate living. So we see high rates of the virus among minority populations who are incarcerated. I've already mentioned work circumstances, that the risk is much higher for essential workers who have to work outside the home. And we see a larger proportion of black and brown people who were in service industry jobs or in other kinds of jobs where they are substantially at risk of catching the virus. And then we know, despite the affirmative impact of the Affordable Care Act on minority health, significant disparities still exist. And members of minority groups are much likelier to have the kind of underlying health conditions that make the COVID virus that much more significant and lead to uh, more problematic and uh, outcomes, including death. So the next slide, please. One of the most important things going forward from a policy point of view is making sure that we have comprehensive data by race, ethnicity, and I would say gender as well, to to understand fully the impact of COVID-19 going forward. When I worked in the Obama White House, we worked quite a bit on disaggregated data initiatives. And I think, again, in order to understand the impact, We really need to press for that kind of data at the federal, state, and local level to really understand who's been affected because that's where remediation and relief needs to be directed. Next slide, please. So as the COVID crisis is affecting communities of color, we also see that it's impacting women and girls, and women and girls of color especially. If I could go to the next slide, please. Again. Women of color are disproportionately represented in poorly paid jobs without benefits. And uh, the estimates that I've read suggest 200 million jobs will be lost in the next few months. Many of those in sectors like um, casual laborers, domestic workers, uh, home health care aides, and so forth. And many women are also facing a huge increase in care work due to school closures, and also having to take care of uh, extended family. And if you look beyond the US, looking at, say, the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone and other places, uh, school enrollment rates went down for girls in the wake of Ebola. And it was a while before those school participation rates began to creep up. And that has lifelong implications for the well being of those girls who become women their families, and their communities. So the COVID crisis is drawing attention, I would say, to women's unpaid domestic labor and how it's subsidizing both public services and private sector enterprise. And so if we're going to rectify that, we have to look ahead to thinking about this particular group of women in these uh, service sector jobs without health insurance, without job security, and make sure that they're included in our economic metrics and decision-making going forward. If I could have the next next slide too. There's new attention to uh, the uh, domestic violence as a particular mental health consequence during stay-at-home orders, both uh, globally and in the United States. And the data signal there is coming from metropolitan police departments who are seeing increases in domestic violent cases and calls. We see this also in many countries uh, across the globe. In France, for example, calls uh, pertaining to domestic violence have increased by some 30%. And uh, helplines in places like uh, Cyprus and Singapore have registered an increase in similar calls by 30%, 33% respectively. What we see is that, the increased need for domestic violence help is occurring at a time that many of those services are not able to provide the care that they typically provide. So we see this in a couple ways. Domestic violence shelters may not be able to operate as they have under previous uh, circumstances. And the coordination of care that's required when a woman has been, or a man has been raped, may be disrupted because the healthcare and uh, emergency services are also directing their attention to the COVID crisis. We also see that even as online mental health platforms uh, make care more accessible, and there's an increase in domestic violence call lines and platforms for people to get help, that there are also new forms of uh, cyberbullying that take place on those helplines and on those online platforms. In fact, some of the online platforms that kids are using for school and for recreational activities present opportunities for perpetrators to reach out to young people and to try to groom them for later sex trafficking or sexual assault. So different forms of violence are on the rise. Domestic violence concerns are increasing and even the modalities for treating them are show some vulnerability as they could be sites of further uh, exploitation. This has led uh, to the next slide to a call from the United Nations to recognize uh, that the threat to women under lockdown conditions is extreme and needs to be addressed by cities and by countries. And um, since this call was first made, more than 143 governments uh, across the globe have committed to uh, supporting women and girls at risk during the pandemic. And some of the most crucial actions that can take, people can take, countries can take, are moving services online, but also being aware of the dangers that take place when those services are online, expanding domestic violence shelters, designating them as essential services, and then increasing support to frontline organizations. My colleague here is in your world, uh, Samantha Power, and she has been speaking locally about how the COVID-19 era will change national security. So I wanted to put this in the presentation just so we could get your reaction to that. She notes that crises uh, have the potential to unite politically divided American communities behind a common cause. And she remains hopeful that COVID will ultimately have that kind of impact. But to do that, she argues that we need to redefine national security to include health and mental health and to uh, increase our share of federal investments in global health security preparedness, as well as public health interventions. So I hope that's the case. I'd be curious as to what you all think. But if I can have the last slide here, this is from the founder of this organization uh, who argues that, what, that change is really essential in order to bring about benefit to those who are left behind. And I see that as probably the most important work that we can do right now, framing those who could conceivably be left behind and ensuring that they have a voice in our policy uh, and public conversations going forward. So let me stop right there and uh, see if we can open things up for more of a discussion and also a QA if you'd like.
1: Okay, so I would love to open up the floor for folks who have questions. I will say on the on the Samantha Power point, I need to read the article, but we actually have an initiative here as well called Redefining National Security. And a lot of it is based on the concept of, you know, need at these other issues and seeing how we, whether the way we define security, which I think the answer is no, <laughs> whether the way in which we approach and define security is really accurate today. Uh, yeah. for, I also interested in that discussion. Uh, we have a spot on the website that we've been having a lot of those. Whenever we do an event or anything on that on that theme, we try to put things on the website for that. So definitely check out the WCAPS.org website for that information. Does anyone have a question?
2: Or or a comment. A comment is fine, too.
1: Question or comment? We'd love to hear. Roger, Roger Mark, the social. Hi.
3: Thanks, Gablin. That was an uh, excellent presentation. I have two quick questions. Uh, First of all, I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about the potential surge in gun violence Mm -hmm. and what that might mean for our communities at this time. And uh, my second question is, I do have members of my team who have uh, tested positive for COVID-19, they now have received clearance and they're now resuming work, but I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about how do we deal with and how do we manage our colleagues who are anxious to return to work, but at the same time, we want them to ease into this as they are getting well and taking care of their families. Thanks so
2: much. Sure. So I followed the public conversation about a decrease in gun violence in many communities because people are at home. That I expect it will return, unfortunately, to its higher rates once people are uh, out and about. It's not an area of specialty for me, so I, don't know much about the specifics there, but um, just as the, uh, the uh, environment shows some signs of recovery, uh, because we're not driving around in our cars and workplaces are, are producing you know less and fewer emissions, and so forth, it would appear that the level of safety in some ways has increased in many cities. So drawing attention to that, the public conversation about that is important. Maybe there's a moment, Maybe there's a public appeal. Maybe there's a public conversation to be had about guns and gun violence. Many organizations include in their messaging right now the world we could create at this inflection point. And so I think it's not a returning to normal, which will not take place, but there's also an opportunity, a platform to speak to the world we'd like to live in. And that is idealistic, but I think that is an important opportunity that exists right now. And with your teams, you know, I think it's really important to, on the one hand, recognize the fears that people have. And unfortunately, some of the public health information that's been disseminated has changed. So people feel uncertain about what to believe. You don't need a mask. Now you need a mask. Now you have to wear a mask. You know, that makes people doubt the information that they're receiving. So I think it's, understandable that people are afraid, and I think you can uh, hold their fear, but we can only go by the public health advice that we have that's vetted by government sources, I would say, and public health professionals. And I think unless we go by that publicly vetted information, we run the risk of stigmatizing those who have had COVID-19. And In the same way, we have to look to the the HIV AIDS pandemic as well, epidemic as well, and recognize that the uh, stigma and discrimination was a significant cause of injury as well as the virus. And so again, thinking about the world we want to live in, I think it's incumbent on all of us who do have teams to help people to recognize what stigma and discrimination looks like and how it can masquerade as concern, but we have to rely on the best science that exists right now. And healthcare workers who have been cleared are returning to take care of people in hospitals. So that might be helpful information for people to have as well.
1: Thank you for the question and the response. Does
3: anyone else have a thought or? Yes, I do. Um, My name is Dr. Hall and I just have a, a quick question from a uh, independent mental health therapist perspective. And that is the importance of um uh, us taking care of ourselves first and foremost. Didn't hear a lot about that, but I know yeah. I have a lot of colleagues who are co- so concerned with and, and encouraging people to be the best version of themselves and to work on this and work on that. And my perspective is a little different. I feel like we really, really need to take care of ourselves first and foremost. And if God is speaking to us to just get some rest and do some mental health resurgence for ourselves, sort of taking in and just listening to what well, God is speaking to us during this, during this time. If you could speak a little bit on that, just the importance of taking care of self and, and just not expecting that we be the end all be all for everyone. Um, until we can get a grip on our own fears, our own insecurities, our own
2: red right. flags, etc. Thank you. Sure. So Bonnie, just to tee you up, there's one last slide I want to share with people that exactly speaks to this as well.
4: Okay. But
2: let me say a couple things. Um, when we talk about the universal supports, I should have mentioned, and thank you for drawing um, my attention to that omission, that among the universal supports are recognizing the importance of self-care. And some of us are able to follow the old airline dictum, put on your own mask before assisting others. And others of us may not quite be able to do that because if you have a two or a three-year-old, they may not be able to wait or you have other compelling needs. So I think um, the spirit of that, of taking care of yourself as best you can and with compassion for all the ways in which you'll only be able to take care of yourself inexpertly is probably good advice. And you, there are many ways that people are able to uh, practice self-care that can be done in the course of a normal day. Uh, mindfulness meditation exercises are really an important source of people being able to take a break for five minutes at a time and restore themselves. Being able to uh, relax uh, certain expectations for yourself. Most of us are not performing at the highest levels these days. There's a kind of fatigue that settles in, a distraction by being online for so many hours. Uh, you know, Zoom brain, they call it, that uh, it's hard to be looking into other people's eyes in the way that we are online all the time. And I did read a recent study that uh, diplomats who are trying to do their normal business online are finding that their intuitions are compromised because they have data coming in in fewer channels as they're trying to read the parties on the other side of the table. So you, you may or may not find that in your own work. But Bonnie, if you could bring up that slide that's a checklist, this might speak to Stephanie's question. So... I think it's important to know about your stress levels and where they're uh, beginning to rise. So, here's a a short checklist for tracking stress. The first is that you're easily distracted and unable to concentrate. But again, we're all easily distracted these days. So, just being distracted is sort of a normal reaction to the current situation. It's when your uh, distractibility and inability to concentrate become more significant. Second, when you do have downtime, no matter what that downtime looks like, if it's 10 minutes or an hour or an evening, are you able to relax? If you're not able to relax when you have time that it's possible for you to do that, you're probably at a higher stress level that suggests some kind of intervention is needed. Likewise, you know, tracking your energy levels, do you have more or less energy Are you restless? Do you have headaches or appetite and sleep changes? These are also uh, signs that stress may have reached a more significant level. And then we have to be honest with ourselves. Are we blaming others more or getting into arguments? Some degree of that uh, is probably normal given the conditions under which many of us are living right now. But it's good to track these because if you see this in yourself or you see these in team members, It is a sign that either more self-care is needed and maybe you can trade off with a spouse or a partner or someone else in your household to watch kids or watch grandkids uh, so that you can have an hour free. Or some families are renegotiating their usual way of doing things. This is how we're going to handle dinner hour now. It's going to be a little bit dinner, different than before. So it is important to track your stress and it is important to try out homegrown versions of being able to mitigate stress. And then if not, to avail yourselves of some of the resources that you've aggregated on behalf of others. So I hope that addresses some of your concerns, Stephanie.
1: That's great. Excellent. Those are great uh, uh, signs and things to look for, Kim. (laughs) Thanks for that. Yes, uh, floor is open.
5: Uh, my name's Netta. I'm an attorney. I work for Bonnie. I'm the fellow at WCAPS. Many of you have probably gotten my emails, so I'm <laughs> excited to meet you all here. Uh, and this is my mom. She's joining Hello. us. <laughs> nice to meet you all. We always hear these concepts of like self-care and what else is self-care and focus on self-care. And so I wondered if you can actually speak to what is the concept of self-care right this yeah, right. yeah. and maybe some tips and tricks for people to use to yeah. take care of themselves when really you're confined to a single space for most of your time,
2: yeah, no that's right, so there are a couple of things let me let me just uh, start with the zoom environment that we're in all the time. I just finished uh, so I, I teach at the Kennedy School here and had to transition a class of ninety people online and it happened to be an experiential leadership class, so the students were fit to be tied, shall we say um, although there was no choice, so that I guess helped ap- after a bit but To try to think about this as a real room, I would have my students literally wave to the right and wave to the left when they were in Zoom meetings, just to remember that they were in touch with people. And I also encourage them to put um, the Zoom settings on speaker view so they could actually look into people's eyes and at least see some of the facial expressions when people were talking with them. I encourage them to keep their video on if they felt comfortable. And some had kids, so there were kids who came into the classroom, and we had parents who came into the classroom, dogs and cats. It was a more humane environment in many ways. And we just noted that as kind of an easing of the usual protocols. So self-care, I I would say, is about um, prioritizing your relationship with yourself and your relationship with others. Prioritizing the relationship with yourself means doing things that allow you to know who you are and what you need and as best you can meeting those needs. So journaling is a great way to practice self-care because you may not actually know what's on your own mind until you take 10 or 15 minutes every day to commune with yourself. And then you might learn that you need more contact with others. And so you set up more zoom calls or phone calls Uh, or games that you might be able to play online with others, or you may realize you need less contact with other people. And as much as you love your children and your dog or your cat, you may need to close a door somewhere for some point of time each day in order to do whatever it is brings you some relief. Meditation is one, yoga, another, some people are finding that uh, exercise is really important, whether they're able to run outside or do something at home. Art, looking at art online, many of the museums are, are opening things up, writing letters to people. The postal system is still intact. You know? So it, you have to figure out what is the portfolio of activities that help you to relax. And you can talk to other people and find out what helps them to relax, and maybe some of those will work. But self-care, I think, starts with developing a relationship with yourself, knowing what you need, and then figuring what of those things are now possible. And maybe it's not going to be possible to get an hour of time if you've got a four-year-old in the house at first, but you might be able to get 10 minutes, and maybe over time, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes as everybody transitions to um, new schedules and things of that sort. So that's one of the things I would mention. Does that help, Nada?
5: Yeah, I'm encouraging my mom to take these times for herself.
4: (laughs) Yes, yes. This (laughs) crisis. Yes, yes.
5: Seven people in the house. Yes. Like, multi-generational. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And when you have seven people in a house, seven adults or 14 people, you know, whatever, you know, people have to find some modicum of private space. So... Sometimes that literally is just a corner of the table that's yours, the dining room table. This corner is mine. (laughs) It's not for anybody else. It belongs to me. Or, you know, I I know many colleagues who are taking calls from literally the closet because it's the only place that can get uh, a little bit of time or even the bathroom. And, you know, under normal circumstances, we wouldn't do that. But these are not normal circumstances. And wherever you can find a little bit of free time, or free space, take it and it's not going to be the same as what you would otherwise have, but it may take enough pressure off just to know that corner of the table is yours or you can go into the closet literally and make your your call.
1: Great. Marcia, did you want to ask a question? I
0: actually just wanted to add to the conversation. I'm so glad you mentioned journaling, Kimberlyn, because I've journaled for decades. And it has been so helpful when I began as a teenager and even now. And I have this wonderful exercise I love doing called the Grateful 100. And it's very stream of consciousness where you can just write down things that come to your mind that help you to not only center yourself but it gives like a real reality to what you're doing. So journaling, I'm just, I'm just here to say yay for journaling because it really is helpful. Yeah. Um, and it just helps you to get out of your head because when you see something on paper, it's not like in your head and you're not dissecting it over and over and over again. You see it there in black and white or on your iPad or something, and you realize it doesn't have to be all consuming.
2: That's right. And
0: that said, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about this new normal that we're all living under. Because there's a loss. I think we will not go back to life the way it was. And I'm a very practical person. I believe that, you know, you have to move with the times and things have changed and you just can't go back to three months ago. But there's a loss. There's a loss of what was and there's change. And it's not just adjusting to it. It's, It's sort of like, embracing it and then moving forward there has to be some kind of healing wouldn't you say this
4: yeah
2: so let me say the first about journaling there's actually a psychologist named William Pennebaker at the University of Texas Austin and he studies journaling and therapeutic writing and therapeutic writing means any kind of writing you engage in that you hope to have an emotionally ameliorative impact yeah done work that shows uh, in an experimental context that as little as 15 minutes of writing a day or a night over three weeks can have health outcomes that can be measured yes so, I believe that, yeah yeah so and it's for exactly the reasons that you mentioned when you're writing you become more of a participant observer in your own life not just a participant and being a participant is great but we also need to step back and have some perspective, and writing in this way for to try to get some relief uh, or some perspective, it just is incredibly helpful. And then the second is, you're absolutely right about the losses that people will need to metabolize. You know, I'm a psychologist, and just a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, I started to realize, oh, we actually aren't going back to the lives that we had, you know. This is not going to happen. And, you know, I, I understand how denial operates and all of that, but still, we're all sort of in this bubble right now of kind of waiting. And we're waiting for something. And it's natural that we would wait for a return to what we know. So the new normal, I would say, <clears throat> is living with and figuring out how to live with very significant degrees of uncertainty, of uncertainty on the calendar, of There's every expectation there'll be a second wave, if not a third wave of this pandemic. So we're going to be living with uncertainty and continuous adaptation for a very long time. And I think we do have to grieve the elements of our previous experience that are not likely to be a part of our lives. Maybe never, but it's certainly not for quite some time. Just walk, when I take a walk around Cambridge, you know, I'm masked up and my uh, neighbors are masked up. And when people walk in your direction, you feel a little bit of anxiety. You know, you don't know if they're going to move over to the side or not. So those are the kinds of changes that I think are just everyday ones, let alone whatever, you know, will be required of you to be functional at work in a new setting and under new conditions. Mm-hmm. So, I think there's a lot of grieving that we we'll
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Great. Annette has a, has a question.
4: Hi, thank you so much for having this uh, webinar. So, uh, Professor Leary, as an academic, I'm currently at Georgetown about to graduate in July uh, with a public policy degree. And Even before I started this program, people were like, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just want to learn and let's see what happens. And now it's like (laughs) COVID's happening. (laughs) And so now it's like, yes, I could see it. I could see the the glass half full of like all the opportunities that could be there now. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I'm like, yo no sé. I have no idea what's happening. So then um, you as an academic and what's happening either at your alma mater or the school that you're in right now at Harvard, like what are the conversations about the possible jobs that are going to be opening in the coming months, in the coming years? Like, is there any conversations about the future in that sense?
2: Yeah. so it's a great question. I would say that what I see happening in the academic communities that I'm most engaged with, the Harvard communities, but also with close colleagues who are elsewhere, University of Miami, University of Texas, Georgetown actually, uh, some Georgetown colleagues too, is that most everything is pivoted or pivoting to COVID-19, to the response and recovery long-term. So the Bloomberg City Initiative literally over you know, two weeks moved everything to the COVID-19 response. And my colleagues who are at the University of Miami who study uh, domestic violence, usually in law enforcement context, have pivoted to now studying domestic violence in a COVID context. So I think there's every expectation that there will be federal dollars available for research and some intervention programs that are COVID focused. So if your interests are ones that can be shifted to COVID response, that's likely to be where there'll be some growth. Unfortunately, what's happening in many academic settings right now, and Harvard is no exception, is that uh, because tuitions are decreasing because students are either choosing to take gap years or leaves of absence, or we anticipate that we'll be doing some teaching online and there's a lot of pressure to reduce tuition fees for online education many academic centers are feeling economically challenged. So there are hiring freezes, salary freezes, things of that sort that are happening. That said, I do think that over the next while, to the extent that the COVID recovery continues to be where priority is, work that can be done in that area is going to be crucial. And we've seen already, like in mental health, as I was describing, how critical the policy work was to enable the expansion of services. If there hadn't been policy relief on billing or Medicare beneficiaries being able to receive online services, you would see a more significant mental health challenge. And we got a significant one right now. So I think thinking about the world of policy And regulation is going to be crucial going forward.
1: Good question and good answer there. (laughs) Thank you. Does anyone else want to chime in with a question? I guess I I do have one question and and and, you know, I I think one in 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 terms of mental health, you know, going back to my original one of my original questions about the way in which this is being a lot more is being done online, I think is really gonna be very helpful, particularly if it could be continued. But in all the different ways which you're looking at this issue, Kim, what do you think is the the most impactful thing that will come out of this uh, mm-hmm. out of this COVID nineteen pandemic? I mean, for you looking at it, what do you think will be the most impactful? And what's been? I mean, there's a lot of negatives, of course, in terms of just what's happening and the, the the sickness and people passing away. But what would you say has been one of the advantages of Working in this new era in this new space.
2: Well, I don't. I, but I'll tell you my hopes, Bonnie, and I and I imagine the ones that you and your colleagues share as well. I mean, it's so clear the interdependencies that exist for an economy to be functional. Mm-hmm. It's so clear the interdependencies that exist for public health to be um, for, for public health to be something that we all can enjoy, right? And a pandemic. Um, does concentrate the mind that uh, you w- we are all in it together. And I think that's important. It sounds idealistic, but I think it's important to recognize. What I would, this, I'm just speaking as a citizen now, <laughs> you know, person of my own interest. I mean, I would like to see that interdependency sort of framed up and recognized more in public policy, that we can't just continue to look in segmented ways at particular issues or particular populations. We have to realize that when we have low-wage workers who do not have sick leave and who do not have health insurance, that we're all at risk. They're most immediately at risk, but we're at risk too, as with the next pandemic to come along. So looking at how can we build up structural supports that will make for more robust communities, and if you think right now, there's a whole conversation that I see happening in cities that, you know, okay, let's send people back to work. Whether or not you think that's a good idea, let's let's begin to open the economy back up. Oh, wait a minute, we don't have childcare. People can't go back to work without childcare, you know? So we're, we still think in silos in so much of the time and we need to think holistically. And that's where I think, the work that you did, Bonnie, and your colleagues on thinking about what health security really means is involves that holistic framing. That's what I think is so critical. I don't know if we're gonna get there because there's so much economic pain that will continue to be absorbed and people will be concerned about themselves, their families, their communities. But we, if we can look up and out, that's the world I'd prefer to live in. You know. Mm-hmm great.
1: It's a great answer. And I totally agree. (laughs) Okay. Any other questions or thoughts before we conclude? Can
2: I just add one final thought about the grief and mourning? Because I I think this came up so robustly with my students. So they transitioned online and they were mad as a hatter (laughs) about this. Many are at Harvard for only a year. And so they lost the last precious part of their time there. Many had funded this themselves, so they were losing out on, you know, on that experience, and it was personally one that they had worked very hard to have for themselves. And they kept trying to figure out who to be angry with, you know? Was it the president of Harvard for closing the school? Was it the dean? Was it the current president of the United States? Was it the, you know, whomever? And after a while, they realized that there was no one to really be angry at, that it wasn't that kind of a challenge. And so they had to mourn a source of their discord. And they had to begin to realize that, like, and these are leadership students, so that when you you face a circumstance that you don't like and you can't change it, your choice is to either just step back or to step in and begin to figure out what you can do. And so my students embarked on such extensive innovation over the course of the six weeks we were online. They were partners in helping us to figure out how to use Zoom well. And I had a teaching team of six teaching assistants for this large class. And then they started to figure out what they could do. So several of my students started uh, an initiative on domestic violence to try to work with Airbnb hosts to receive. Domestic violence. People who are at risk of domestic violence. When shelters were full, it's not clear they're going to be successful. I hope they will be, but it's a it's a great plan. And others were working on other kinds of policy initiatives. To Annette's uh, point, so people began to realize this is what we can do. Maybe we can't do something else, and they began to realize, of course, that they've now had a unique Harvard experience that. No one but this cohort will know. And so, in some ways, they've bonded together more closely and will be better collaborators, you know, have greater collaboration opportunities than they might otherwise have had. They're still grieving what they lost, but you can still gain things even when you're grieving. And that's, I guess, what I wanted to share.
1: Well, yeah, and I really like that, that point because I think there's something to be said about learning how not to how to when you can't blame someone or how to deal with something when there's so so often there's misplaced blame and what i find you know and i look at you i look at the people who are protesting now and want to open up the government uh the the cities and and states and not to want to bring a political issue into what i think is a a non-political point that you're making But, and I'm not even sure that's political the way I want to put it, but, you know, being angry um, at a time when the real threat is not a person, the real threat is is a virus and getting angry and saying, it's not the same as if you protest a person who's doing something against you. You're protesting a situation that's created because of something that is a virus. That is not something that's creating something against someone. Uh, and so I find what's interesting about some of the the anger at a time like this is a lot of times the real perpetrator is not a person the perpetrator is a fact that we're in a position because of a virus that is attacking without discrimination and the yeah. effects that are being felt is because of a system that has created the discrimination but yeah. the anger by people at the system. At the government, because it's not allowing them to do things, but the reason why is not because a person's doing it to them, per se. It's because we're dealing with a pandemic, which is not a person. It's a thing. It's a whatever. So for me, it's, how do, it, it's, a, it's opening up the challenge here is how do we as a community learn to deal with threats that are environmental or natural, because this is a natural disease, a natural situation that's happening. At least at least we think so for those who want to think it was on purpose because China did something that's a, that's another issue but at this point it's still believed to be a naturally occurring disease um, so you know getting angry at a climate change event or you know because there's lack of food because because of climate change you know these are kind of things we have to learn as a community and as a global community that these are things that are happening um, mm-hmm. how we deal with a global a result of a global threat or of a natural something is not always gonna be the way we traditionally deal with things. And so I like the way your students have dealt with it to say, let's channel that anger that we realize we can't really direct that always direct at a person because it's a situation that unfortunately existed, that exists. Let's think about how we can do it in a positive way to help others who are dealing with the problem as well.
2: So that's- yeah. point. <laughs> I think that's, that's absolutely right. But side by side, I think it's important for the loss to be acknowledged. I think it's the acknowledging the loss that enables people to move in this direction. And to Annette's point in the um, chat, what I saw was that those students who could simultaneously recognize that there was a loss that they had to bear and mourn in their own way, and also that they recognize that you don't get To choose the challenges that come to you when you're a leader, you know, you actually have to deal with the challenges that arrive in your inbox.
4: Mm -hmm. And these
2: are students who wanted to be leaders. They want to be leaders. So this gave them a chance to really practice, if you will, in real time. And they all said, you know, because my class was on leadership and authority, they're like, well, Professor Leary, you know, this is like a great. Thing, that we had to deal with this real-time challenge. Never do this again, but, you know. <laughs> um, but, but we were able to take it and use it. And I, yeah. I was very pleased with them on that. Yeah, on
1: that. and that's a great. I mean, that's such a great ch- it's such a great lesson about leadership itself. And so just, if you, don't, if you don't mind my commending you and the way you handled it, I mean, so much is the, how do you handle a difficult situation? How do you handle a challenging situation? And it's good that it's a leadership class, because they're learning how to be leaders in these difficult times that we will have in the future when we have to deal with these environmental kind of challenges. (laughs) There's different ways that one can be a leader and can tell people, you know, how to, you can help people to learn how to deal with a situation in a calm way, or you can be a leader that incites people to feel like this is how I deal with it. So leadership is an important part of how we, how we will deal with challenges in the future. So. Anyway, yeah, Marcia, do you want to have more? Yeah,
5: please.
0: I know we're almost short on time, but as you ladies were talking, it came to mind that it really is a privilege to be able to, for example, work from home. So it got me thinking about some people in the developing country where, in developing countries where working from home is not an option if you're a day laborer. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I just wanted to, i that's perhaps a whole other conversation. But if we can just inject a little bit of that, like I believe that the pandemic has shown us entrenched systems of oppression that exist in this country and outside of this country. And it's really like exacerbated issues that I think leads to a whole other bunch of issues. And so this virus, yes, it's just a virus that's brought us all together, but it's also shown so much of our underbelly. Underbelly yeah. of racism and oppression and economic injustice and a whole plethora of things, and how just the fact that we can zoom in and have our part of the table, or like me, my grandmother's bedroom, how that's a privilege, and some people don't have that. Right. So, what can we even do about that?
2: Yeah, it's the, a crisis. I know that you've all experienced this. A crisis reveals the systemic and structural work that hasn't been done right so whatever progress has been made which has there has been progress i I agree with that there has been but it also shows you where it hasn't and Mm -hmm. and that is exactly what you're saying around the privilege that exists and those who cannot opt they don't have a choice if they're going to work they're going to have to leave the house you know you can't drive the bus from your house right Mm -hmm. and yet we're not treating many of those essential workers, and I think someone made this point in the chat as well, we're not always recognizing the broad number of roles out there that are essential and making sure that those folks are valued, validated, and that we're clapping them out, you know?
1: Yeah, and if we're not gonna, I mean, I hope that one of the things, there's so many things that should come out of this, but I hope that one of the things that come out is we do recognize that we have to value even more people who. And not stay home. Yeah. And you have to make that hard decision about yeah. going out or staying home. Yeah, okay. So this is, we're, we're at 1129 and this is <laughs> such a good discussion. Um, so <laughs> thanks, Annette. <laughs> for that. So I just want to say, Dr. Leary. Yes. Kim, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. I knew it would be great because I know just how wonderful you are and, and the great yeah. work you do. And so I knew this would be an easy one for us to do a, 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 an excellent uh, call. So yes. thank you for, it, for what you're doing, for doing this with us and for everything you're doing uh, just regularly during this, during this period and all the work you're gonna be doing afterwards. I'm sure you're gonna be very much involved in so many things in terms of leadership, mental health, preparing our next generation, everything. So thank you so much for doing this and for all you do. And thank you to all of our uh, participants listened uh, if you're not a wcaps member definitely join wcaps wcaps.org you can hear some more of these wonderful things because we're going to be continuing to have amazing speakers um, part of our part of our series of discussions so thanks again everyone thank you, thank you. Uh, thank so you. really pleasure to
2: meet you all, okay. all right. thank, thank you, you. Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank, you. Um,
0: thank you so much thank Bye-bye.
2: you. bye- bye